Hi there, it's Will, host of Fresh Ed. Yesterday, the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group hosted a keynote address at the Comparative and International Education Society's annual conference, which is being held, or was held, this year in Vancouver. I'm going to play the audio of the hour-long keynote address, which was given by Andre Mazawi. Professor Mazawi works in the Department of Educational Studies at the University of British Columbia. His talk was entitled The Location of Globalization on Building Dwelling Thinking, Higher Education. Enjoy this special edition of Fresh Ed, and I'll be back on Monday with my interview with Leigh Ha Fan. Thank you very much, uh, Will, and everyone for attending. Um, um, I'm grateful for the kind words of introduction. Um, had I known that this is going to be said, I would have perhaps come a little bit later. <laughs> um, I usually do, I'm usually uh, late for all kinds of things, so I could have used that anyway. Anyway, uh, thank you so much to the, first of all, congratulations to the winners and to those who have received the awards and the nominations and the citations. And I think I would like to say in many ways, since the abstract was written and that will, and, um, and the SIG leadership have uh, received my abstract, things have a little bit shifted over the last six, seven months or so. So I will try, but I think I would like to actually carry on the conversation that uh, uh, Professor Mota has just talked about in terms of the situatedness of our knowledges and the situatedness of our projects in relation to wider schemes. Basically, in a way, my presentation today goes that line. And so I hope that through it, I would be able to offer a little bit, a few uh, reflections on, on that issue. And secondly, I would like also to say that my approach to the term globalization is not really to offer any kind of systematic overview of the concept itself. That's beyond what I can do in whatever time I have. Rather, I want to just interrogate the term and to, dwell, to delve on the absences and silences where I, th I think there has been silences on the term globalization. And to use that in order to interrogate, even at, at a price of doing unorthodox connections between things. Um, and so, in many ways, my talk today um, um, offers a set of very personal reflections on the literature that I have been working with, and I think Will kindly mentioned that I've done most of my research on these areas in the Mediterranean basin uh, countries and uh, across the Middle East, the Arabian Peninsula, the GCC states, and so forth. Um, so these are very personal reflections. Secondly, I would like to focus even more my discussion of the globalization stuff by actually focusing on one of the main elements that often shows up in the literature on globalization, which, is, which has to do with cross-border and transnational uh, dynamics. And that's aspect I wanted to take in relation particularly to higher education, how higher education institutions engage that kind of cross-border and transnational dynamic. My aim is to discuss, therefore, the involvement of higher education institutions within the wider context actually, as Professor Mota was talking about, within the wider context of global migratory, uh, now I need to first find this, yes it is, the global migratory uh, flows and transnational initiatives in which universities and higher education in general is involved. I would like to interrogate the different aspects associated with the involvement of higher education institution, institutions with border crossing as a form of deterritorialization and and in the recruitment of international students as a form of re-territorialization. So by repositioning higher education over the field of the global migratory flows, my hope is to capture dynamics that have remained neglected in, uh, in uh, globalization studies. Um, and I think the, the point that uh, the first slide that I show here captures is one of two observations, both related to border crossing and transnational dynamics, that I want to start with. And I saw these two pictures, actually there are two depictions. The first one, the upper side, is taken from a recent article from The Economist. And it shows over the backdrop of what has been happening in Syria and the forced migration of hundreds of thousands and millions of people out of that country has, has put a kind of 
drawing that is quite dramatic and interesting in terms of the people who are trying to cross over to another side on a very, very kind of uh, delicate tightrope of sorts. And below it is a picture that figures out and on the first pages of the report prepared a survey on internationalization that was prepared by the AUCC, the uh, uh, Canadian Association of Universities and Colleges. And the contrast is absolutely striking. Both are referencing transnational, transborder, border crossing, uh, international uh, processes, but the, 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 the contrast is quite marking in terms both of the, um, uh, the diversity exposed, the serenity of the lower picture, and the tense and very dramatic effect that is achieved in the first one. So these two pictures started to a little bit trigger my own kind of thinking about what is happening. Are these phenomena totally disconnected? Or in some way, can we rethink from within higher education some form of situatedness in relation to them? So the first observation emerged as I was view viewing this, and then also as I was reviewing um, uh, some of the statistics uh, elaborated with regard to uh, international students. Um, international students that which who today con uh, constitute a quite an important group in terms of uh, a target market to be recruited into universities all around uh, come from virtually every country around the world and tend to be affiliated on the average with economically more established and urban milieu in their societies of origin. As I will show shortly, the majority head to higher education institutions located in North America, West Europe, U Australia, and New Zealand. They travel more often on their own, while refugees and asylum seekers will travel usually with families, sometimes even entire communities. They travel more often on their own and fall within younger age brackets. Most importantly, for my purpose here, they are actively recruited. They are actively recruited, and I'll show some data about that if I have time. Uh, whereas the first uh, category is not really recruited in any way. Actually, if possible, it's pushed out uh, through the denial of asylum or uh, sequestration in all kinds of camps for refugees and asylum seekers. So uh, in relation to these international student, uh, recruits, no global statistics are readily available regarding the economic returns and the economic impact they have on the uh, hosting economies. But for the exclusive sake of illustration, I found some data about this referring to Canada, in which the expenditure of international students studying in Canada deferred in different provinces and territories stood at almost $7 billion in 2010, of which 4 billion, that means 57% of that expenditure was, only, uh, was exclusively that of international students studying in universities. So it's quite, quite a significant economy. In contradiction, not only refugees and asylum seekers, not only they don't generate, usually they are accused actually of draining national resources of the countries and the host societies in which they are. So I think it is very interesting to, um, to, to contrast these two groups. Um, and the first ones, not only they are not recruited, at best they are relegated to the attention of NGOs, humanitarian assistance, and so forth and so forth. Given this wider context, and I have not even mentioned the, the kind of more conventional kinds of migration that happens, I was particularly intrigued, if not puzzled, but what, by what I was perceiving here. Perhaps an unintentional, structural, institutional division of labor between established higher education institutions and humanitarian agencies and NGOs in terms of catering to different categories of human migratory groups. I could not avoid wondering whether these are two distinct phenomena, each grounded with its own context of flow, or whether we are witnessing, in fact, stratified dynamics that pertain to the same field of power. And I'm using field of power in the sense that Bourdieu uses it. Uh, that is, that NGOs, international agencies, institutions of higher education, and even, if one stretches the argument, mafia and people smugglers, smugglers are differentially located over a field associated with a political economy revolving around the management and regulation of human migration to its kinds. Such a conceptual hypothesis, and it's just a hypothesis, 
challenges established distinctions prevalent in the literature on migration and higher education. Existing definitions of migratory phenomena construct different migratory groups, among others, on the basis of the motivation that led people to migrate or to, to go out, uh, whether it was forced, uh, voluntary, uh, whether it is an outside, an, a choice, and so forth and so forth. Yet, in my daily work, in this and in other countries and contexts that I have worked in uh, over the 12, 27 years, I have often encountered potential and actual applicants or students who explain that they have applied to a higher education institution or would like to apply to a higher education institution as part of a longer term plan to resettle in a new country. That is, to migrate. I have also encountered immigration consultants who advise their clients to boost their viability in terms of the points they get on their immigration by actually applying to certain institutions and getting certain degrees. <laughs> if that is so, then our conceptualization regarding migration, the recruitment of international students, and wider processes of deterritorialization and reterritorialization and transnational dynamics must be reformulated. This applies particularly with regard to what does specific recruitment what does the specific recruitment of students from different countries across the world stand for and what underpins it within the global order of things? The second uh, observation that I would like to build on is that in relation to these dynamics I'm talking about, there are other issues, issues to do with the literature in higher education uh, as a field of study and particularly in the way it is equipped to deal and to conceptualize and to unpack the underpinnings of these kinds of uh, processes. There is little in that literature that would help shed light on the complexities and multifaceted aspects associated with the actual role higher education institutions play in relation, not just to the recruitment of international students, but in relation to human migratory and displacement dynamics more generally. This realization was well captured by Simon Morganson and Gary Rhodes who pointed out that globalization processes remain, I quote, understudied and under-theorized when it comes to explaining transnational activities and forces in higher education. They further added that, quote, global forces, end quote, that shaped higher education are not so much analyzed or theorized as they are identified. So basically, okay, this stands for this, this stands for that, but we really don't have a notion of what precisely is the global dimension of things, what underpins it as a structural concept. In a more recent chapter entitled Imagining the Global, Marginson, that's 2011, so quite recent, pointed out that, quote, the main theorizations of higher education evolved prior to the communicative globalization in the <coughs> 1990s and are mostly locked in national frameworks. In sum, a review of these uh, approaches in the field of higher education studies are uh, quite inadequate for us to, to try and deal with these issues. So my point of departure in this discussion is that globalization and border crossing dynamics are co-constitutive in articulating a monotopia vision of the world. By, first of all, let me explain what I mean by border. By invoking the term border, I am not referring only to territorial borders that demarcate countries and world regions. I expand the term, together with other people who have worked in this field, to include non-territorial borders. Such borders are enacted through feverish and always fluid, mobile, and changing bordering and rebordering practices, associated with powerfully intersecting juridical, administrative, social, cultural, and economic practices, borders eventually become, in the words of Chris Rumford, diffused throughout society. What does it mean? Now I'll state it in my words. I would argue that borders are to the state, capital S, what othering is to the state of mind. Both are intertwined and feed into each other's other. Borders represent political quasi-artistic installations and enacted social performances, respectively, or both constantly mutating. One of the ingrained globalization tropes has it that borders have all but disappeared. Yet, mediatized event across the world, and not least across the Mediterranean basin, lend credence to the view that borders represent ambivalent institutions. Subject to the plasticity of policy politics, 
borders and their fluidity reflect the turns and counterturns of culturalized, racialized, and politicized geographies. The current forced migration of refugees out of Syria and its geopolitical and global ramifications represents one reminder among many that borders have all but lost their relevance in our times. Within these realities, passports, visas, and yes, education degrees, higher education degrees, have become life-defining objects, life-defining objects related to the capacity to move. have become life-defining objects of demarcation that underpin different regimes of spatial mobility opportunities. Hence the question, how, do individu how individuals, groups, entire community, and not least people smugglers, and I say in higher education studies we have not really at all started even to figure out the symbiosis that might exist in this or other way between smugglers of people and higher education institutions. But that's a discussion for another day. So how do how individuals, groups, entire communities, and not least people smugglers, negotiate and straddle borders, and how they reposition themselves in relation to life opportunities are indicative of what Giorgio Agamben refers to as the politicization of life. It is worth invoking here the September 2nd, 2015, I'll, I'll pass on my data, Perhaps we'll come to it at the end. I've done work, actually, but... <laughs> yeah. It, it is worth invoking here the September 2nd, 2015, hyper-mediatized representations. And I'm dealing here just with the representation of the body of Aylan Kurdi, a five-years-old child from Syria who, according to The Guardian, was washed dead to the shore not far from the Turkish fashionable resort town of Bodrum. One picture among many that caught my attention is the one that depicts a Turkish police officer, border police officer, carrying Aylan's Kurdish, Aylan Kurdish body in his arms in a posture reminiscent of almost a kind of Christian pieta of sorts, moving across, moving over the crossing point between water and land, between there and here, between the hopes and aspiration of the Kurdi family apparently to join relatives already settled in our beloved city of Vancouver, and the year of failing to reach a safe haven and its concomitant realities of death and loss. At this point, I cannot avoid contrasting this tragedy with my own rather very orderly uh, and seamless immigration to this country and city. Equally, I cannot avoid thinking how is it that, and why is it, that we, that means you and I, are able to assemble here today, able to sojourn as tourists, settlers, and or conference participants in Vancouver, while Aylan Kurdi and many others among us could not. Yet, with all due diligence and fully recognizing significant differences that impose themselves as to context and circumstances, I would claim that higher education have their version of Aylan Kurdi. They have their versions of Aylan Kurdi. Some luckier than others to cross over. The stories of those who did not make it or who do not make it are most often relegated to oblivion, discounted from higher education statistics, and possibly, possibly added to those of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR, and of national and international aid agency. Consider the following Kafka-like letter, that um, a Kafka-like letter dispatched by one anonymized graduate student who lives in a country outside of North America and Europe to one admissions office of a university in North America concerning delays experienced in the issuing of a study visa. I, I'll read it. I'm writing, says that student, I'm writing to provide you all with a quick update about my study permit application. The result of my medical re-exam is negative, meaning that I don't have any health complications. This was cleared since September, and the result was then mailed to the embassy in capital city A, which is responsible for the medical clearance. However, since I haven't heard anything from the embassy in capital city B, who is responsible for the file, 
about the status of my study permit application, I emailed the, the embassy in Capital City A this last week and was told that the embassy in Capital City B hasn't yet received the final medical clearance from the embassy in, in, in uh, Capital City A. The embassy in Capital City B will follow up with the embassy in Capital City A if they don't hear anything from them by November. They cannot follow up now as still within, we are still within the processing times and I am not allowed nor have I any means, that's I emphasize, nor have I any means. It's a trip of several thousands kilometers with a plane in countries where the income is probably what you would get in a couple of three days work here. Nor do I have the means to follow up with the medical office in Capital City A directly. This has worried me tremendously. I may not get updates about the status of my application permit, until late November or early December, and I may then be required to travel to Capital City B for an interview before a study permit is issued. If this is the case, I don't see a possibility of my arriving on time to start the second term. So that's one example of border crossing and the complications. Consider two, consider two, the case of Palestinians suffocating under an all-encompassing Israeli colonial architecture of power in the West Bank and Gaza Strip, and whose right to self-determination is trampled. Barred from cross crossing over their respective territories, students and faculty cannot access higher education institutions located within or beyond their localities. Reduced to a security concern, subject to infinite restrictions, totalized surveillance, curfews, and institutionalized isolations, Palestinian institutions of higher education find it virtually impossible to exit the confines of their territories in order to engage learning opportunities, fellowship, and professional, <clears throat> uh, uh, professional opportunities and work. The construction of a wall, literally, called the separation wall, accompanied by systematic land grabs, evictions, dispossession, has specially dismembered whatever land remains for Palestinians to build a meaningful communal life. To crown it all, so symbolically, stands the construction of an Israeli university in the occupied West Bank, West Bank by virtue of a military order by a military commander, issued by no other than a military commander acting in a self-claimed capacity as the sovereign. That a higher education institution is erected by military orders over occupied West Bank lands as part of a wider scheme of dispossession of indigenous inhabitants begs globalization theorists and those interested in internationalization to clarify how their views and their analysis can be reconciled with what are what seems to be localized articulations of nationalism and parochial political pursuits. Clearly then, borders that Ailan Kurdi, the anonymized graduate student, I read the letter, the and Palestinians and so many other contexts I don't go into, engage in different ways, represent more than just borders in the conventional sense of the world, despite differences of context and circumstances, and perhaps because of those differences. Rather, in Agamben's words, they represent potent what Agamben calls biopolitical borders. That is, borders that have the ultimate power to suspend life, to delineate life from death, or to reduce life to bare life. In that sense, everyone's experiences are not captured, obviously, by globalization as monotopia. A so-called globalized world, or small village of sorts, either does not apply to everyone, or perhaps we live on distant planets, galaxies, and constellations, each under their own spatial and temporal regimen uh, of its own. In that sense, Ayman Kurdis and the other examples I invoked should indeed um, uh, are indicative of the biopower that regulates movements by bordering and rebordering institutional spaces in manifold ways. In his book, Homo Sacher, Sovereign Power and Bare Life, Agamben writes, if there is a line in every modern state marking the point at which the decision on life becomes a decision on death, and biopolitics can turn into thanatopolitics, that means the politics of death. Thanatos was the 
demonic representation of death in the old Greek, Greek myths. And biopolitics can turn into thanatopolitics. This line no longer appears today as a stable border dividing two clearly distinct zones. This line is now in motion and gradually moving into areas other than of political life, areas in which the sovereign is entering into an ever more intimate symbiosis, not only with the jurist, but also with the doctor, the scientist, the expert, and the priest. And I would add here, if we are priests of sorts, historically speaking, then we are in that category too. If it is, uh, sorry, it is as if, he continues, every valorization and every politicization of life necessarily implies a new decision concerning the threshold beyond which life ceases to be politically relevant, becomes only sacred life, that's the minimum, and can be such as such be eliminated without punishment. Every society, says Agamben, every society sets this limit. Every society, even the most modern, decides who its sacred men are or will be. Bare life is no longer confined to a particular place or a definite category. It now dwells in the biological body of every living being. So I want to build on that. If the politicization of life has become trapped, among other things, within biopolitical borders, then we are bound to ask, how are higher education institutions positioning themselves in relation to these borders? As spaces of politics, but also as spaces of economic extraction. What role do higher education institutions play, directly or indirectly, in the Tanato politics that separate the good life from bare life so distinctly? Within the wider context of transnational dynamics, within which higher education institutions are increasingly engaging themselves, important questions need to be addressed regarding the ways in which the space of geopolitics shapes the viability of border crossing initiatives in higher education. Equally, critical questions arise as to the ethical regimes higher education operates under, supports, and consolidates either by omission or by active involvement in transnational and cross-border initiatives. Who is allowed to border cross and who is not? Within which wider space of geopolitics does the higher education recruitment of international students unfold? How do higher education institutions privilege particular forms of international recruitment while negating or avoiding others in relation to state policies? What generative role, if any, are higher education institutions able to play in geopolitical terms in promoting forms of ethical collaboration, internationalization, and engagement in ways that transcend and perhaps even challenge and transform the power dynamics in which they are operating? Judging from the literature on globalization, international, and higher education, it seems quite safe to argue, though it may sound shocking to some, that higher education institutions have adopted global and internationalization policies that are rather, rather parasitic on state geopolitics, dependent, dependent on international aid program and soft power engagement policies more than they are preoccupied in exerting the full power of their capabilities to transform the inequitable political geographies and the histories of colonialism and economies of subservience associated with the caring for our common home. If we admit Agamben's analysis, then it is inevitable that we critically deconstruct how higher education institutions stand in relation to border crossing and border straddling as a new horizon of opportunities in which they are so vigorously launching themselves. In many ways, I could, I'm saying I could argue, higher education institutions have emerged into one of the more complex and multifaceted border crossing vehicles. While the recruitment of international students is the normalized conceptual lens through which we approach the area known as international recruitment, how are the prevalent kinds of policies located in relation to the larger biopolitics of border that I have referenced before? Such as involvement of higher education institutions in cross-border war, war-related, or potentially war-facilitating industries in military occupation, in, in supporting environmentally destructive projects, and so forth and so forth. 
Can we conceive of higher education institutions as occupying different positions over the same field of power on which people smugglers are also active, reflecting a division of labor concerned with the massive flows of human movement that are attributed to globalization? And that's the mess, because when you read about globalization, it is treated almost as an autonomous phenomenon. It does things. It does all kinds of things. But what is this agency about? What is the global in globalization? Very few people would be able to tell you. But when you nail it down or boil it down to certain things, then you start unraveling new realities that you consider outside the realm of the, the term. So it's very important to, to be aware of it. Within this wider context, then, what relative share do higher education institutions come to play by enacting or by helping to directly or indirectly enact what Agamben's, Agamben refers to as the threshold beyond which life access, sorry, the threshold beyond which life ceases to be politically relevant becomes only sacred life and can be as such eliminated without punishment. The involvement of higher education institutions in border crossing is remarkable, to say the least. One could, for instance, start by reviewing the prevalent nomenclature, that is the body of names in a particular area, in official and scholarly discourses around and in relation to the border politics of higher education institutions. Here are some examples. It's a cursory review. International houses, global education, global citizenship education, study abroad programs, overseas education, mobility schemes, and more interestingly for our purpose, offshore campuses, education cities, knowledge villages, borderless education, virtual higher education, and international hubs to their source. If one adds to this nomenclature, the terminologies prevalent in state policies and the kinds of visas and funding schemes available to applicants of different world regions and citizenships, then the panoply of instruments is quite impressive. Clearly, higher education institutions have shown great dexterity and a remarkable pragmatism to not only align themselves with the flows and ebb of global economy, but also to carve for themselves new horizons in relation to which, uh, border, uh, in relation to border crossing. To paraphrase and, and extend a term call, uh, coined by my colleague Jude Walker, border crossing, I would say, has become an extraction economy on its own right. The matter gets further complicated. In his book, The Kingdom and the Glory, for a Theological Genealogy of Economy and Government, Agamben points, points out that tracing borders or transgressing borders is a mark of the sovereign, with a capital S, or a mark of sovereignty over the economy of the kingdom and government that has traditionally been associated with empires. Thus articulated, lines of demarcation that structurally and economically tie access capacities of individuals and groups across the world to higher education institutions capture inevitably new attributes of sovereignty. They enact new potentialities of immigration and citizenship that shape the territory, that shape the organization and management of the civic, political, and economic and academic household. And you can see examples of that all over the place. Even in this province, there have been all kinds of schemes I wrote about, if somebody's interested, in a chapter in 2013 that tie, for example, the obtention of certain certificates uh, to, to facilitate and easy, ease out uh, immigration processes and to speed up the process. The capacity to trace borders or establish borders and border lines of different kinds while trans transgressing others has been captured in a study conducted by Susan Robertson, Robertson and Ruth Keeling. Robertson and Keeling examined the impact of border crossing initiatives on horizontal collaboration, on horizontal collaboration among higher education institutions. They point out that uh, the increasing competition among higher education institutions in different parts of the world results in the forging of, quote, a more highly stratified global market of higher education across regional spaces. They further observe that while some universities, to which they refer as global Ivy League or Super League institutions, develop into autonomous. It's interesting, she uses, they use the term autonomous. I use the term sovereign. Hmm? Autonomous, highly stable players and their own, with their own agenda, the real fight for global dominance may in fact be taking place, they say, between the second tier of US institutions, European universities, and Australian <coughs> higher education institutions. End quote. 
The implications of these, policy, of these processes is that horizontal collaboration among higher education institutions emerges, in fact, as vertically stratified and bounded. I'll explain. It plays out mainly within collaborative networks among conglomerates of institutions, not an open network. Often we use the term network, but it's not an open network. It's very important to, to nuance that thing. It plays out this collaboration between institutions, mainly within collaborative networks among conglomerates of institutions, leaving less space for equitable horizontal collaboration. For instance, the Coimbra Group, Universitas 21, the Idea League are all kind of illustrations of this dynamic of established university networks that trace more or less porous or more or less rigid borders by pooling their resources and capacities to create bounded markets of collaborative opportunities and a culture of higher education that is distinctive. At the same time, as Gerald Postiglione and David Chapman point out, quote, many lower tier universities that want to enter this market, and you can imagine where they are located in which countries, many lower tier universities that want to enter this market may not have the resources or experience needed to establish a partnership with a Western institution. For these and for other reasons I don't have time to elaborate, I am inclined to think that perhaps, counterintuitively, higher education institutions may have weakened the role in social reproduction in the conventional sense of the word, um, as articulated, for instance, by sociological theories of Pierre Bourdieu in his book, The State Nobility, or by Randall Collins in his Credential Society. Emphatically, I'm not saying that higher education institutions have ceased to fulfill a reproductive role. I'm not saying that, not at all. I don't uphold that, that view. But what I wish to argue, however, is that in a competitive global market economy, in an economic form of globalization, uh, in an economic form of globalization, uh, of the type captured by Robertson and Keeling, which pushes towards constant expansion, recruitment, and growth, including expansion and recruitment of students, it may well be that higher education institutions increasingly operate in relation to borderline geography by mediating local, geopolitical, <coughs> national, cross-border dynamics in such a way that they are emerging as a pillar that underpins a new spatial order of differential mobility. So there is still the inequality dimension, but it has shifted in terms of its meaning. Everybody can get into higher education. That's not the issue. But not everybody can have the same outcomes of it and the market and all the whole economic system has become more stratified. Such an order represents, I argue, a new horizon of spatial inequity and inequality in terms of one's spatial mobility opportunities. That is, in terms of being or not being above the threshold that Agamben talks about, the threshold of bare life. This is where I can see a major challenge for those of us who are interested in comparative and international education and higher education. If we pursue our interest in international recruitment, sorry, if we pursue our interest in international recruitment uncritically, stuck in normative and conceptual visions that reproduce myopias of a bygone age, uncritically, and I may say obsessively pursuing our imagined conceptual and methodological habits, we would miss a meaningful understanding of the crucial processes that are reshaping our lives and the lives of societies around the world. We need to ask, what is the thing, that internationalization stuff, what is it? Because the internationalization term is a term produced in particular institutional platform. So what is it that we see it from our standpoint as researchers? We need to ask, what is the thing that we are observing when we compare or study higher education institutions across geographic and geopolitical configuration. What are we comparing when we contrast internationalization policies in isolation from other border crossing dynamics that unfold at the same time, whether, whether in zones of conflict and instability or in zones stricken by sanctions, political sanctions, UN sanction, sanctions, bans, poverty and marginalization. Can we still talk that it's internationalization when not everybody can move, even states or universities can move the same thing? There, were, there are countries that have been, whose universities, as a result of larger UN sanctions, could not do anything for 20 years. So what chance do they stand? They didn't have even textbooks for their students. 
chops to the professors. As simple as that. So I'm trying to locate where is the globalization in all of that stuff. So we need to ask this question, can we compare, contrast internationalization dynamics across country, countries in isolation from other border crossing dynamics that unfold contemporaneously, whether in zones of conflict and instability or in zones stricken by sanctions, bans, poverty and marginalization. What is that science we are practicing and what does it do? When we study border crossing dynamics without problematizing the wider flows of massive human movement unfolding all around, what should be our unit of analysis? And how do we capture in our work dynamics that span multiple sites and location, social, cultural, political, and spatial? Can we persist in thinking higher education in terms of it, its own institutionalized logics, those grounded in the economies of neoliberal knowledge economy and knowledge mobilization? As researchers and practitioners, some of us are this, some of us are that, or the two, can we disregard the involvement of higher education institutions in the biopolitics of the day in relation to human forced migration, immigration, refugeedom, disskilling, and the exactions of economic return through retraining and recertification programs for professional immigrants. That's another kind of uh, economic flyer, so to speak, for those who are aware of it. In brief, what higher education institutions and what scholarships and practices do we want to claim as a home to dwell in? The last rhetorical question is significant for the argument I'm trying to make. One important challenge facing a viable articulation of globalization in relation to higher education is an epistemic one. Following the work of Andrea Brigenti, I wonder how can we transcend the normalized what she calls the fields of visibility in which we continue to partake by naming the things that have been named for us, like internationalization, globalization, etc. The things that have been named for us represent, in fact, fields of visibility that determine the forms of political labor in which we are implicated whether we recognize this or not. Leaving unproblematized these fields of visibility ultimately determines what would and would, what would not be seen within a particular social space that we study. What would be recognized as such and what would be misrecognized within and across locations and sites of practice. Operating as visual <coughs> orders, these visibility fields establish what Jacques Rancière calls a political aesthetics of the sensible. That is, they enact a system of a priori forms determining what presents itself to sense experience. These visual orders are not just textual or discursive, but they also assume tactile forms, either through websites and media channels or still through public relations materials. In a most recently published book, Global University Rankings and the Mediatization of Higher Education, Michelle Stack shows how the universities she studied draw on image banks and mediatized databases, such as the Getty database, in building institutionalized visual online representations that brand the institution as an idealized spectacle that purports to represent the real university. Yet such representation of the real, and I use here real in capital R, with a capital R, Yet the real, with a capital R, are so is so sublime that, in, in, in the words of Slavoj Žižek, the real, capital R, is on the side of fantasy. Clearly then, fields of visibility, whether conceptual, discursive, or tactile, shape not only the perception and the meanings of things, in this case, border crossing and higher education, but also how and which people, persons, and things appear and manifest themselves to us as phenomena over a particular landscape. These fields also determine, and Nancy, as Nancy Fraser points out, how and what one recognizes or misrecognizes as such, including one's relations to oneself and what counts as an injury to one's identity. Accordingly, I argue that border delimitation and border crossing have become ubiquitous characteristics of higher education institutions, and increasingly so for school district jurisdictions as well. So for example, in many countries, including in our province, you can go to a public school, 
and uh, in the same class you would have uh, public school students and then you would have international students who pay the full fees of that seat uh, under a different regime. Nothing bad about it in principle, of course, but the question is that, it, that one begs is, what is this new political economy doing to the classroom, doing to education more generally? So border delimitation and border crossing have become ubiquitous characteristics, even for school district jurisdictions as well. How higher education institutions to their kinds and types position and reposition themselves in relation to these borders and in relation to other actors positioned over the field of migratory flows calls for a shift in the gears of our tools to capture what is at stake. That is, if comparative higher education is to make the world and its exactions, wounds, pains, and sufferings legible in meaningful and empowering ways. I would like to conclude by making a short detour and go back to the notion of dwelling that I invoked before, a few minutes ago. In two essays written by Martin Heidegger, Martin Heidegger, Heidegger lived in 1889 to 1976. Uh, so the first essay is Building, Dwelling, and Thinking, and it was captured by my uh, title. And poetically, Man Dwells, Heidegger points out that dwelling is not necessarily the outcome of the act of building a shelter or a house. One does not dwell just because one builds. One can build without dwelling. For Heidegger, dwelling is a learned process, and as such, it is experiential. It commits and engages one's consciousness and sense-making capacities. It is part and parcel of the act of appropriating and making sense of a space, of opportunities, of a place, and of a location where one roams and lives, and as such, in its inter it is interrelational. Dwelling, therefore, references a process that is constantly in flux, linked to the emergence of ideas about things and their material actualization as events as an, and as alternative, what he calls horizons of possibility. Heidegger, in fact, inverses the relationship between building and dwelling. He posits, he says, only if we can only if we are capable of dwelling, only then can we build. It's very important to think about it. Only if we are capable of dwelling, that means imagining the purpose of things, can we then dwell somewhere and make it a home. For him, dwelling and building are embedded in each other. They reference a generative capacity to imagine, name, colonize, appropriate, claim and reclaim the materiality of things, but also their meanings. Dwelling represents for him a force of active engagement and involves both thought and action. It seeks to make sense of, yet also transform, the spaces of one's experienced realities. In relation to that, I ask what higher education spaces and what articulations of comparative education are we capable of dwelling in, of imagining and reclaiming, so to speak, so that our work offers critical and legible analysis of a world marked by abysmal disparities of wealth, displacement, and human injustices? How can the act of dwelling as a fostered sense of belonging represent a foundational pillars, pillar that opens up new horizons of possibility for the em emergence of grounded and contextualized bodies of knowledge in comparative and higher education? How, how can the act of dwelling also help us unpack the patriarchal gendered, social class, racialized, and ableism-related epistemic lenses that undermine the articulation of what a home stands for. And that's another critique I didn't have time to go into, because if you read much of the globalization literature, you will find, and there is a lot of literature on this one, how much it is basically colorblind to all kinds of distinctions, intersections, gender, sexuality, and so forth and so forth. So I think that you, you want to build a home. It is important to articulate these intersections. It is important to in include them not as addenda, you know, but as an integral part of the conceptualization of things. That's an aspect I didn't have time to go into. In that sense, considering the implications of Heidegger's notion of dwelling would allow us to break free from both economic determinism and models of neo-institutional isomorphic emulation. That's a term from neo-institutional theory. And pursue questions that transcend what Lee calls the immediate, immediate returns on neoliberal pursuits by refocusing attention 
on the social actors and denizens of higher education institutions and how such institutions and the imaginaries that, that underpin them are built from within. I, I argue that lacking this sense of dwelling and belonging, the potential for indigenized knowledge, and I use the term indigenized not in the sense of indigenate, indigenized is generatively locally produced. This is what I mean. I argue that lacking this sense of dwelling and belonging, the potential for indigenized knowledge, and hence of a meaningful contribution to comparative higher education and education, is not only considerably weakened, it is further subverted by the very regulatory articulations of the policy we seek to, policies we seek to study and which end up naming things for us. I further argue that under such circumstances, uncritical globalization narratives and their uncritical application to our understanding of the current transnational and cross-border policies in higher education themselves become instantiations of hegemonic articulation of circuitous and marginalizing explanations. Daniel Thrower reminds us of the daunting nature of the task lying ahead of us and the responsibilities that go with it. He warns us that if we fail or forget to adopt that epistemic critical stance, then, he says, I quote, the alleged description of the object turns out to be, in the end, the construction of the object. If this were to happen, he further says, this would homogenize the researcher with the topic. In other words, meld the construction of the object with the research itself on it. The result would be what he calls a Whiggish history. A Whiggish history is a, is a kind of one that sees the linearity of time and space and everything is in evolutionary and progress terms. In our case, this would mean constructing a violent and colonizing science of comparative education, grounded in uncritical notions of progress and development. Such a science would have forsaken any hope to contribute to the construction of a just and equitable world and society, thus condemning us not, not to recall, in the words of Derek Gregory, the part that we continue to play in the performance of what he calls the colonial present. Gregory's word and with which I, I, I <coughs> sum up, are relevant to comparative education and higher education research on cross-border and transnational engagement of higher education institutions. They beg the question, how could we conceive of borders and, border and cross-borders in relation to higher education institutions in ways that redeem our science from the specters of the colonial past and its present articulations? Thank you.